Welcome to Sourced, a podcast about the art of audience engagement at a time when competition for attention has never been greater. What works, what doesn't work, and what's changing. Sourced is brought to you by 55 Comms. We've been telling stories, learning about audiences, and helping clients for more than 25 years. You'll hear from a range of guests, including our clients and old friends. Deborah Riley is one of Australia's quiet achievers. Born and raised in Brisbane, Deb had no idea what lay ahead when she began studying architecture at the University of Queensland. But watching a Batman movie on the big screen would take Deb on a journey that she hadn't expected. The next step was to the National Institute of Dramatic Art, where Deb began studying set design. Before too long, she'd be working with some outstanding creative minds. Baz Luhrmann, David Atkins, and Oscar-winning director Alejandro Gonzalez in Naratu, just to name a few. Years later, Deb's big break came when she was hired as a production designer on the mega-hit series Game of Thrones. That was from season four onwards. Deb had never seen an episode of Game of Thrones when she was first approached by HBO, but she would go on to win four consecutive Emmy Awards for her work. Deb has spent years understanding audiences and creating worlds in which the unbelievable becomes believable. Due to COVID restrictions, Deb joined us via phone from Sydney, where she has been spending her time during a quiet period for the international film and television world. My name is Michael Crutcher. Welcome to this episode of Sourced with Deborah Riley. Deb Riley, welcome to our Sourced podcast, and I must start by saying we probably should say hello to our mums, who I'm sure are listening. <laughs> Hi, Michael. Yes, hello, Mary. Hello, Mum. <laughs> yes, we're uh, we're virtually family. We are. Well, thanks, Deb, for joining us, and for you, it's been a, a time when COVID's impacted your industry, like every other industry. Um, but it's meant mm-hmm. that you've spent more time in Australia than you have for quite some time. Can you tell us about what the last 12 months have been like for you? So I arrived back in Australia on March 17 last year. I was um, scouting around um, England and Spain and Portugal uh, and having the whale of a time. And then I realised uh, when Australia closed the border to China, I, uh, I thought, right, okay, this is serious. We need to get home now. Um, so, yeah, and even at the time, the, the company I was working for suggested, oh, but if you could come home via LA, that would be great. And I said, no, no, you really don't understand. Um, Australia doesn't mess around with these things. I need to go now. And, uh, yeah, so I've been here nearly a year. So, yeah, it had been at least 12 years since I'd been in Australia for any great length of time. And certainly, oh, much, much before that, since it had been at least a year. So it's been a lovely kind of period for me of, um, going and meeting up with like really old friends, people I haven't seen for 20 something years. It's been, um, it's actually been for me, uh, I've been lucky enough to be somewhere that's, you know, obviously very safe and, you know, I haven't had a lot of anxiety about it, like, you know, friends who live overseas. So I've actually found it a very rejuvenating and refreshing experience. 
And we're doing this uh, in separate uh, locations because you are in Sydney and that's where you've been for a little while now. You've been obviously in touch with a lot of your colleagues who you've worked on over the years with uh, different productions around the world. So it's it's sort of a universal thing in terms of the impact for your industry, isn't it? It's not just something unique to Australia, but something that people the world over are, uh, are enduring. Yes, exactly. But I have to say, I mean, people in Australia have been able to keep working so much better than people in other parts of the world in terms of the film industry. Um and it's been managed very, very well here. Uh, the situation for me is that I haven't worked here for so long um, that I'm not really part of this industry. So um, my my friends and my colleagues in the film industry tend to be, you know, the people that I have worked with over recent years. So I more naturally consider myself part of that group than I do um, with the Australian industry, if that makes sense. So. Um, yeah, Australia has a lot to be proud of, though, because there's a lot of film work that's come to Australia as a result of coping so well with COVID. Deb, your career's been through a few really interesting phases, but at the heart of everything you've done has been audience engagement, just knowing how to get audience attention and to keep that. It all started with your first step after you left school. What did you do then? So when I left school, I enrolled in the School of Architecture at the University of Queensland. Um, when I did that, I had the full intention of um, graduating as an architect. Um, the architecture degree is broken into two sections. The first three years used to be called the Bachelor of Design Studies in Architecture. Um, I think it's slightly different now. And then you would go and you would do your professional year before coming back for your final two years of the architecture degree. Um, so there was a natural break after the first three years and that's when I veered off into something else. So for a little while there though you were going to be Deb Riley the architect and that was where you expected to be. When did it change a bit for you? Um, well for me I think it, uh, it it changed slowly but it became more and more obvious um, as time went on and it actually took my grandmother who pointed out to me that uh, Perhaps I should have been um, concentrating on something else. But um, there was a particular moment when I went and saw uh, Batman Returns with um, three of my friends who were also at university. And um, and I was looking at the Tim Burton film and I thought, wow, like this is architecture, but it's not real architecture. This is architecture that's just built for the screen. Who does that? And then I went back to um, my old school and looked up the career guides, which of course were books in those days, and uh, realised that there was something called set design and you could study it at the National Institute of Dramatic Art in Australia. And uh, that was the next move I made when I um, I took the time out after the third year of architecture. Yeah, because those Tim Burton films always had a bit of a look about them, didn't they? They, they felt like they were in a particular place and was that what sort of caught you that type of feeling when you watched that movie yes it absolutely was because I think at that time I had never thought about it I didn't know um, that there was an occupation called production design um, which is what I do now I, I had never heard of it before which is very different to, to young kids now um, who are interested in the film industry but I had no idea for me when I saw the Tim Burton film and I had seen other films but I guess I wasn't watching it with the same eyes you know, it's a very particular look and maybe I had assumed up until then that other films were just shot on location or they just turned up and started shooting. I had never considered that there was something called the art department. I had never really thought of that. 
I was very into Walt Disney and animation and I understood that there was that part of filmmaking, but I didn't understand that um, film and television also need an art department. And uh, I guess it was the first time that I actively sought it out. I actively realised that somebody has chosen to do that as a career. And um, that was the point that I, I started looking for something else. It was a bit of a career correction. I should say as well, because you'll be too humble for this, Deb, but you, through primary school and high school, were the most remarkable artist you could produce anything. And I saw (laughs) one of your old teachers recently who uh, said he got one of your assignments one time and took it into the uh, staff room and said, I think we've got someone here whose parents are doing their work for them. But it had always been something that you'd done. So you had this talent as well, which you looked at through uh, drawing, through maybe being a cartoonist and all types of things. So for you, you were able to sort of marry that up with your architecture as well at the time, weren't you? Yes, that's exactly what I was doing. And I was academically, uh, you know, relatively sound. So it seemed to be to be a very good combination between the arts and the sciences, which of course it is. And um, it seems like a really great place to try and put those skills. Um, but as my grandmother pointed out to me, she said, you're drawing too many straight lines. And it was because I had been such an artist as a younger person um, that she sort of noticed the absence of that, I guess. And, uh, yeah, she was sort of subtly telling me that I should investigate other things. And, um, yeah, it, it's sort of interesting because, I mean, where do you go if you can if you can draw really well? It, it's just, it, it was difficult to know what to do with it because um, I, although I could draw and I could particularly copy very well, Um, I don't necessarily know that it would have in itself led to a career. Um, And that's a a tricky thing for creative people to actually find somewhere where they can go and make a decent living. And we should then mention the fact that you did go to NIDA because we know of the NIDA graduates, the famous actors, but of course NIDA is more than that. But I guess that's where you started to learn more about those skills, about making people feel as though that they're in a place that they really want to be in when they're watching a production. But, of course, when you're at NIDA, you're not sort of doing the work that you did on uh, on Game of Thrones or what you'd seen on Batman Returns. NIDA was about the theatre for you, wasn't it, and the stage. So how did that impact on, on what you first did in this field? Well, it was extraordinary for me to go to NIDA because it wasn't as though I had any great history in theatre at all. Um, and you're right, NIDA is the National Institute of Dramatic Art. And at the time that I attended, there was no film component whatsoever or a very, very small component. Um, it was uh, very much focusing you on a career in theatre. But I was very, very lucky because little did I know at the time, production designers or successful ones tend to have those first three years of architecture and then some sort of um, set design study, you know, some sort of course that focuses them on how to um, turn what you know of architecture into something for entertainment. And so little did I realise I I had exactly the skills that were required for the film industry. So we're talking about the late 90s now, mid to late 90s, when the Australian film industry, similar to now, was really booming. And at that time it was booming because the Australian dollar was very low. And uh, it meant that there were more jobs going around than there were for people to fill them. And because I had uh, architecture behind me, because I knew how to draw, I knew how to um, do construction drawings, I 
knew how to uh, build things. I wasn't frightened of being in a workshop. Uh, I was absolutely perfect to walk into a job uh, in a feature film. But at the time when I was asked to go and interview, I actually thought I was interviewing to you know, draft an opera or something because that was the kind of work I'd been doing up until that point. And I went out and had an interview out in Mascot, um, out by the airport here in Sydney. And um, it was extraordinary because the art director took me downstairs uh, into the workshop and there was a giant fiberglass helicopter hanging from the workshop ceiling. And I remember saying to her, Michelle, what is this? And she said, it's a feature film, then. And from that point onwards, I never worked in the theatre ever again. <laughs> it had me at that moment. I, I know exactly the moment that, that everything changed. Yeah, well, and I mean, your whole career, and right from when you were a talented young artist, was, was born on creativity. And mm. we often hear sometimes that creativity is sort of the the natural realm of young people when they have imaginations that haven't been, I guess, uh, jolted by the reality of life and the busyness of life. How have you found that creativity, Deb, over the years? How have you been able to keep it up at such a, an amazing level, um, you know, so many years after you, you were left school? How does creativity flow through you? Um. It's a curious thing because I don't really consider myself an artist. I, I think of myself um, as a very sort of right brain, left brain person and I think that's one of the things that's um, been able to sustain me in the industry because I I can see that the industry is actually exactly that. It's a business and um, you have to think of yourself as operating in a much larger machine and so when I entered film that was actually one of the things I liked about it was that you could see yourself as part of a much larger team of people trying to produce this product to entertain audiences and to um, tell a particular story and you know build these magnificent sets and to create these wonderful images and uh, I could see my part in that machine and I understood my value and I think um, there's been many people along the way who have helped me refine that and understand what that is. But a lot of it was to do with finding my tribe, um, finding that group of people that were already successful in the film industry, finding the people who were interested in the same style of work that I was. And uh, that has always been able to sustain me. And I've also been the sort of person who sort of looks out for mentors as well. Um, and... Uh, you know, I was very lucky to be mentored. So, you know, it was those very crucial elements, I think, that sustain you over time. Let's talk about those mentors, Deb, because they have been so important to you and your career development. Baz Luhrmann, one of the important early mentors for you. What did you learn from Baz Luhrmann about working to engage audiences? Um, absolutely. The wonderful thing about um, working with Baz and his wife, uh, Catherine Martin, um, who's his production designer, is that they were also NIDA trained. So for me, I understood where they were coming from and I understood exactly what they were trying to do. And it was interesting because when I was in the art department one day, Baz uh, said to me, he said, you're NIDA, aren't you? And I said, yes, I am. And he said, you can spot it a mile off. And I think it's something to do with just the work ethic. There's a very strong sense of purpose and you know at NIDA we were trained to think in a particular way we were trained to think about the process of design the process of engaging with a story and entertaining um, audiences and telling that story 
and how to extrapolate that into the best set design that you could or the best costume design or whatever aspect of the theatre you're working in. And when I worked with Baz, I understood that he was doing the same thing, but in theatre. Oh, in film, I beg your pardon. And uh, so the wonderful thing for me was um, I had worked with them early on when Fox Studios in Sydney was just being developed and they needed a backlot. So I had been a model maker for them when they were designing the backlot for uh, Fox Studios in Sydney. And then when that rolled on to Moulin Rouge, I was hired as a set designer. Baz was already aware that I could draw because I'd been doing some um, like Brad Pitt kangaroo and Fred Astaire kangaroo and that sort of thing, like drawing, <laughs> you know, little costume designs for him at that point. And, uh, but, you know, not really made any particular impact, I'm sure. And, uh, yeah, so by the time it got to Moulin Rouge, I was one of the first people who was hired on that movie. And uh, so much so that we were actually operating from his house, which was a giant house in um, Darling, Darlinghurst there, where he and his family lived. So, um my drawing board was literally in front of his door. And I was hired in particular as a set designer to draft the facade of the Moulin Rouge. But when I read the script, it said, the line said, and she goes inside an elephant. And I looked around me and I realized that no one was drawing an elephant. And so I um, did a drawing of an elephant the way I saw this elephant would work. And, you know, and you see you, when you read the script, you realize that there's various pieces of action that go wrong around this elephant and all that sort of stuff. So I incorporated all of that into my drawing in the garden of the Moulin Rouge and very cunningly left it on my drawing board over the weekend, knowing that he would have to walk past it in order to enter his house. So uh, by the time Monday morning came, it was the girl at the door is very good. <laughs> and so from that moment onwards, I became the elephant girl because uh, it was just the most fantastic project. And he then took those drawings and then a separate sculptor was hired to um, build the maquette, to, to sculpt the maquette. But, uh, you know, from that, you then build a three-dimensional view of, of what it's going to be. And uh, I was summoned to Baz's house one night and he had the um, my original drawings pinned to the wall and this maquette was sitting on the table in front of him and Catherine was there as well. And uh, he said to me, um, I, I look at the maquette, I look at your drawings, I look at the maquette, I look at your drawings, you did not sculpt that maquette. And I said, no, I didn't. And he said, that was sculpted by a bitter person, the drawings are not. And I said, right. And, uh, and he said, so do you sculpt? And I said, I've no idea. And um, and he said, right, I'll meet you every Sunday and we'll work it out. I'll let you know. So it was exactly that. So he met me every Sunday. I um, went and bought a whole lot of plasticine and uh, I didn't even really know what materials to sculpt with. But uh, I built a little framework and then um, built this elephant, which was about the size of a wombat. And he would do um, sessions with me on a Sunday afternoon, like, about if the elephant could walk, how would it walk, if it could talk, how would it talk, and, you know, all this sort of stuff, what age it was and that sort of thing, and just develop the design that way. So it was a wonderful opportunity for me to um, really engage in understanding what I had to offer in that field, like how my skills might be best put to work. And he used to do something that he called, like his films, he would used to call at least the red, um, what he called the red, uh, curtain trilogy, um, real artificiality. 
and I understood what that was from the theatre. It's like you're trying to create something that looks real, but ultimately it's artificial. I mean, obviously the elephant is not real, but you want to make it look like it's real in a sense. So uh, I understood precisely the line he was trying to dance on. So you've mentioned a few things, Deb, that it sounds like they didn't really teach you at night or could teach you anywhere. One of those was getting the script and finding something where you thought, hey, there might be an opportunity here. And the other thing is, do you sculpt? Um, Well, let's just have a go. Let's just see what we can do. So that takes something from you. But I guess to be good at it, your work has to be really appreciated by others and they have to engage with it. So how did you go about going out of that comfort zone? You kind of learn as you go along and, you know, necessity becomes the engine. You've got to, you've just got to do it. So you do. And it's amazing how when you're under the gun, uh, it's amazing what you can come up with. (laughs) Yeah, because you have been in your time and given the nature of the industry, there are no guaranteed paychecks for life here. And there have been tough times for you, haven't there, where you haven't really been sure in your younger years what was going to happen next. No, and I think that that's the thing. I mean, the life of somebody in freelance is very, very unpredictable and uh, that really is one thing that they don't teach you at NIDA and that's how to survive. Um, it's very difficult, I think, to understand that uh, even though you might be going to an amazing school and, uh, you know, things can seem really exciting and optimistic, I mean, they can also very quickly become quite the opposite. And you've got to be able to... Um, tolerate not only the high highs but the very low lows and there needs to be some sort of equilibrium in between there needs to be something that uh, allows you to um, see it all through and somebody said to me once uh, you know it's like criticism and praise are the same thing it's just somebody else's opinion and that really changed my outlook on things because um just as much as the lows can get you down, um, sometimes the highs can be just as damaging because they create low lows too um, when it doesn't continue. So you've really got to keep your mental health in check, actually, and just keep on making sure that you're um, interpreting things correctly because I think it's very easy to become very depressed when things don't always go to plan. And the one thing that I learned when I was living in America for so long was um, the Americans... I don't care about the falling over. The Americans care about the getting up. And um, that's the thing that's really important. Talk about the role that Baz Luhrmann played, but also David Atkins was so important to you early in your career. Deb, can you talk a bit about David Atkins, what you did with him and the things you learnt from him? Yeah, David Atkins um, was the... Well, I mean, initially in Australia, he was quite famous, wasn't he, because of um, Hot Shoe Shuffle. And we all knew Dave Atkins and Rodney Birchmore as um, a kind of a double act of dancers. Uh, but David is an extraordinary director and producer in his own right. And I met David when he was directing uh, the ceremonies of the Sydney 2000 Olympics. And I was hired on the Olympics as uh, an art director of the closing ceremony. There were there were two art directors and I was one of them at the ripe old age of 26. And again, I was in that position because there was nobody else. Australia had never done this before. These these job titles didn't exist. And uh, I was so lucky because I finished Moulin Rouge and rolled straight on to the Olympics. I mean, how amazing. <laughs> 
And, uh, and yes, and that's when I met David. And it was extraordinary because when I think about it now, I mean, David must have been probably my age or maybe even slightly younger when he directed those ceremonies. What an absolutely enormous, enormous job. And just in terms of, you know, telling the story of Australia, you know, that was, a, it was Sydney 2000 was an extraordinary time. I mean, the opportunity for Australia to define itself in, in a world in, in the rest of the world and to sort of want to tell our story culturally and how we see ourselves and how the world sees us uh, was quite a fascinating thing to sort of be sitting on the sidelines of and watch them shape a show. Uh, that was absolutely fascinating, actually. And um, David was incredible because he was not frightened by the scale of things. And David could tell you the name of everybody in the room. That was the thing that impressed me the most. Even though, you know, obviously in order to work on those ceremonies, every second of that show needs to be understood because you've got to be able to track the movement of every volunteer, the movement of everybody who ends up out on the field of play. You know, every prop, every costume, every shoe that, you know, a performer puts on, it, it needs to be put somewhere and go somewhere. You know, it's just the most extraordinary process of, putting that show together, rehearsing it, and then getting it into the stadium, let alone the cauldron and all the other pressures that go, you know, with that show and all of the performers and everything else. I mean, the, the stress must have been extraordinary. But David taught me to never be afraid of scale. He absolutely had all of that in his brain. And that was a very, very inspiring thing to see. Deb, you would go across oceans and begin learning from many different people in different roles. One person on whose films you learnt a lot was a very famous director in Alejandro González in Naratu. Can you tell us a bit about that? So when I was on Moulin Rouge, um, I met the uh, set decorator on Moulin Rouge. Her name is Bridget Brock, and she's a production designer in her own right. And she said to me, well, we became friends on Mulan, but uh, she said to me, you know, come with me and I'll mentor you. And uh, those were the magic words. And so when I went to see her in Mexico, I didn't really understand to what extent um, she was a production designer in Mexico. But she was working for a director at the time called Alejandro González Inaritu. And... Uh, Alejandro went on to direct uh, Birdman and um, The Revenant and, you know, has a boatload of Academy Awards now. But uh, at the time, he was still uh, much younger and much hungrier, I guess, as a young person. And the great thing was uh, he has a particular philosophy about filmmaking, which is that he needs to be able to smell a set in order to believe it. Um, Baz had built everything on stage and so I really understood building on stage and that was much more in line with my theatre work. Um, but uh, Alejandro wanted to work on location and solely work on a location. So if we were, um, you know, working in a funeral parlour, we were shooting in a real funeral parlour. If we were shooting in a hospital, it was a real hospital. So we had to find an abandoned hospital and work in that um, because he understood the value of like an X factor, I think, you know, that you get something out of working in a location which if you're sitting at your desk and drawing a plan, you would never understand. It's just all of those human touches that, you know, real 
real houses, real buildings, real environments have that you just can't quite replicate if you try and build it yourself. It always looks slightly fake or slightly Disneyland. Um, but Alejandro can never be accused of that. So um, I worked with him on some commercials in Mexico when I was with Bridget. And then when they went to the United States and uh, they made a film there called 21 Grams and I was the artist the art director on 21 Grams. So we were shooting out in um, Albuquerque in New Mexico. And uh, where else were we? We were in Memphis, Tennessee as well. So, um, yeah, I was again, I was very, very young. I was, I was only 29 at the time. So I was very, very fortunate to learn how different people view essentially doing the same thing, that you can come at things from all different angles and still achieve enormous success and still sort of tell their particular stories in very particular ways. And um, so someone in the art department can actually be very flexible in that, that you can develop different styles of thinking according to how they're wanting to tell that story. And that to me was fascinating. Now, production designer, Deb, when someone says to you, you're a production designer, what is that? What do you say to them? Exactly. Not many people know what it is. Um, so the production designer is the head of the art department. That's the easiest way to put it. So we're responsible for the sets and for the props. We're not only responsible for designing what the actors stand in front of and what they put in their hands, but they're also responsible for the team that puts that together and uh, making sure it all gets there on time and on budget. So um, it's a very... Uh, yeah, it's a very difficult job in, in some ways. And what is really great about it is that you get to interact with the directors and the producers and the cinematographers in a, in a very um, intimate way in lots of ways. Like you really have to nut out these particular problems. So it's all about all of the relationships that you have with these people and how you can focus on achieving a particular look or a particular effect or whatever it is that they want out of a particular scene. And then it's about encouraging other artists and carpenters and plasterers and painters and prop makers and um, greensmen, all these different people, uh, to achieve that particular look for them. And so, uh, yeah, it's a it's a fantastic job. Um, and you know, there's so much variety in it. And whether you're building on stage or whether you're building on location, uh, it's it's all just um, about trying to tell the story. Um, going back to the script and understanding what it is that the director is wanting to say, where the actors are going to be at any particular point in time during that scene, and how the art department can support that. So a vacancy comes up in Game of Thrones for season four to be the production designer. Game of Thrones had already developed quite a following by this stage. How did you come to be the production designer on Game of Thrones? No, I'm not entirely sure myself. What I do know is that G- Give I us your spent, best version then. Yeah, I know. It's really weird because it's not like there's a linear story to tell. Um, the great thing was uh, I had moved to LA in 2008 and um, my agent at the time had sent me around to meet all of the heads of the various studios. So I went in to meet the head of Paramount you know, um, I went in to meet Amble and, you know, it was like such an extraordinary experience of, you know, going and meeting 
all of these different film production companies and just in introducing myself, basically. And, uh, yeah, and not a lot comes out of these things, um, but at least they know you're in town or whatever. And I had arrived in the start of the financial crisis, so my timing was really off. <laughs> and then um, I also met the head of physical production at HBO. Her name was Janet Graham Barber, and I met her in 2008. And she phoned back in 2013. So I had a really, really desperate time in those uh, intervening five years. And I was down in Baton Rouge at the time working on an absolutely shocking ghost-busting film of all things. <laughs> I was earning about $100 a day. And, uh, yeah, and then my agent calls me to tell me that I have an interview for uh, Game of Thrones. And I hadn't seen it and I certainly hadn't read the books. So, um, yes, I was going to I, ask, had you watched any episodes at all at that stage? No, but HBO sent me the first 30 hours, um, even though um, season three hadn't yet aired. Uh, they sent me everything. And so I watched all 30 hours in a weekend. And uh, and then the following weekend, I, I went and met with them. Um, the awful production company that I was working for at the time wouldn't even release me to go and interview for Game of Thrones on a work day. Wow. So uh, I had to um, fly out on Friday night after work, meet these people now um, who are you know still great friends of mine on a Saturday and meet uh, meet HBO and all those people and fly back on the Sunday to be back at work on uh, the Ghostbusting film on the Monday morning. So uh, it was a really sort of strange process. And then after I had met them, I almost was doing homework for them for a while. Like the, the audition process, as it were, went on for about a month. They would give me various um, things to do, almost like reading and comprehension, you know, out of the books and sort of draw, you know, my interpretation of that. You know, there were various sort of new cities that they would be going to in the show, so they wanted to see what I would be able to do with it. Um, wanted my comments on various things just to see how I would react. And um, I remember one day being told that I had um, a Skype call with David Benioff, and um, David was one of the writer creators of the show and I thought oh wow I must be getting close yeah. <laughs> so um, I locked myself in an office one lunchtime and uh, spoke with David and uh, he said to me look you know um, your name's Riley uh, let me let's take you home and I remember just saying does that mean what I think it means <laughs> And uh, and I because I was in Baton Rouge, you know, he said to me, "Well, why don't why don't we exchange one swamp for another?" <laughs> and I said, "Oh wow!" <laughs> and I remember finishing the call and then not even being able to sit on a chair. Like I just had to sit on the floor. Like I just I was in such shock um, that I'd actually be off the job. And then it took about another month or so for uh, for all everything to be sorted um, because because I had no experience. Um, on paper, at least, as being a production designer. Um, there were various protests by various people um, as to my appointment, and um, so a few things had to be fought off. And uh, Janet at HBO um, was the one who, the story goes, finally said, come on, it's her. You, mm -hmm. you, ha you have to back it. And, uh, and they did, and... Um, you know, I said to David many, many years later during the show, you know, how did you know I could do this? And he said, you're storm-born, Deb, we could tell. 
I said, okay, there you go. And uh, those guys, David and Dan, um, and you know HBO, the producers, uh, they were so kind to me. I was uh, an Australian working with Americans in Belfast, um, and obviously with a group of um, you know crew from Northern Ireland and and from England. So it was an astonishing experience to to be a part of that thing. So it was a show you'd never watched until they came knocking. You would go on to win four uh, successive Emmy Awards for your work, which suggests that the industry thought you did a very good job, but also Game of Thrones continued to grow in its popularity around the globe. So what was central to you in keeping those fans not just engaged but growing them as well how do you come into a i guess a a world of which you haven't been a part of and then not just become part of that world but also enhance that world i think i was very fortunate because i was certainly not experienced enough and those people who protested uh when i got the job you know they had a point there was nothing on paper that suggested that i could do it however I knew in my gut that I could do it, and uh, I told them so. I mean, even during those interviews, um, I, I did what they always tell you not to do, and, and I begged them. You know, I said, yeah, this, I, I really, I, like, I know I can do this. And I remember David Benioff saying to me, I know you know. And, uh, <laughs> I mean, I was, that, I was that blatant with my, um, you know, desire to work on the show because, There was something about the theatricality of it, but there was also something about the reality of it that I knew it was a combination of all of the jobs I had done. It was a combination of what I learnt from Baz about the the theatricality, the real artificiality, to Alejandro's work on location, to David Atkins and just never being afraid of scale, that I thought, right, I have seen the best people in the world manage this. And, um, you know, if I take the best parts of all of those guys that I've worked for, I'll be able to handle it. And that's what I did. And so I was fortunate, however, because the show had already been established and there was a set tone, um, I could take that and make it my own. I could understand what the previous production designer had done. And as Game of Thrones grew, I could then make it my own but I already understood what the what the rules were. But central to its success from an art department point of view, I think, is that I was very focused on playing the reality of an environment because I thought that if a viewer and an audience can invest in the reality of that world, if they believed in Westeros, if they believed in Westeros, in Essos, you know, they could then believe in dragons because... From my point of view and the kind of logic that I was applying to it, if nobody believes in the world, then nobody's going to care about the dragon and nobody's going to care about these these characters. But if you invest the energy and the detail into creating something that's a very robust telling of this world, I think that that will take an audience along for the ride and then they'll invest everything in it and then through visual effects and through the extraordinary costumes and everything else that supported it, um, I, I think that there was an environment that was created where where people did really feel like they were a part of this world, that they could, um, you know, watch it and 
feel like they they understood these characters, that they understood, uh, you know, their character arcs and that dragons were as natural in that world as horses are in ours. And, uh, and that, I think, was a great achievement. You also had a changing of technology, Deb, around about this time when you'd, you know, you'd worked with Baz Luhrmann on, on Moulin Rouge with the big screen, you'd worked in the big stadiums with the Olympics, but now you're also doing things on TVs that are getting bigger, but people watching these TV shows on their mobile phones. How did that impact on how you went about your work? It might be someone sitting there at night with this small phone in their bed or it might be someone watching in a gigantic TV screen in their house. How does that impact how you try to engage with those audiences? Well, I mean, you'd be surprised to learn we didn't think about it at all. Um, we were aware of the fact that people could watch it on any size screen. But we had also at uh, our premieres and things, we'd watched it on a cinema screen. So we wanted to make sure that no matter how big it was, you were going to get the maximum impact out of what we did. So we never said the word television and we never said the word fantasy. And uh, as far as we were concerned, we were uh, producing you know, feature film uh, production values on a television budget and schedule. And in order to do that, uh, you know, on reflection, I realized that David and Dan had been very, very clever. They hired perfectionist workaholics who um, were able to produce it. And that's the thing. You know, we, we made it look as good as we possibly could, given the time and the money that we had. And whatever screen uh, somebody chooses to view it on, uh, that was their choice. But if they invested in watching it in a cinema, then we wanted to make that experience as good as possible as uh, somebody who's watching it at home on TV or, you know, on the subway on their iPhone. And what about expectation, Deb? Because the, the series kept growing in popularity, it seemed, and, and every year you had the benchmark of the previous year and, of course, you were there until the final season of Game of Thrones. How did you deal with expectation and, and trying to, I guess, keep audiences not just uh, satisfied but take them beyond what they'd experienced before? I think that was actually very, very difficult, and um, I'm not sure that uh, I necessarily coped very well with it, particularly in the final season. Um, I knew how Game of Thrones was ending uh, about, well, at least a year before before we finished, and then you know it was like six or nine months after that that the show finally aired. So I felt like I was carrying this enormous secret with me, and I didn't a soul how the show was going to finish and I found that a very heavy burden to carry around and um, I was so pleased like despite the reaction that season 8 received there was part of me that was so relieved that I didn't have to carry that with me anymore that it was out there like regardless of what people thought about it it was it was done um, in terms of the fans themselves we I would go on to various websites at times and just sort of see what they were saying about various things. Um, so I, I wouldn't lie and say that I didn't engage with the social media at all. I did read, obviously, I wouldn't reply. Um, but yes, we were very aware, of, you know, certainly in the art department. Um, I'm not sure about the producers, but uh, yeah, in the art department, we knew what people were saying about things as we were designing them or what set. Um, they were anticipating, you know, what they thought of the house of black and white or 
or what they were looking forward to seeing in Dragonstone or whatever. I mean, we were we were quite conscious of all of that, and um, yeah, there, we had some amazing moments of you know building these extraordinary structures and then seeing the actors in their you know stunning costumes sort of walk onto these spaces. It's a very rewarding process, and uh, yeah, and then when you see the way that they're photographed, um, you know, it was a it was a great thing. So we always had to satisfy ourselves first. And um, and if we were satisfied, then you have to sort of say to yourself, well, that has to be good enough, you know, because you can't you can't possibly um, please everyone's taste, you know, in one go. So we did the best we possibly could. I can honestly say that with everything, we honestly tried our hardest, and uh, that's really all you can ask, I think. Yeah, and what about after that, Deb? I mean, we knew Game of Thrones was going to finish, so you're in the freelance world, so Game of Thrones finishes, and and what happened next for you then? Well, it was a funny thing because um, how do you follow Game of Thrones? I mean, how on earth do you think that you can follow through? I mean, with that, it was was a really um, quite daunting, I think, to, to try and work out how that was going to happen. And uh, it was something that I think all of us collectively had been dreading on the show was the thought of moving on. Um, even in, you know, I, I joined late, but, uh, you know, I had still spent five and a half years living in Belfast. And very quickly I understood just how special that crew was and special the show was. And um, from quite early on, I was dreading the day I would finish. And so when it finally came, it was um, it was really sad um it it was satisfying in one way because it was like the job was over but it was also saying goodbye to all of these people that you'd worked so hard with and you know been side by side with for so long that uh you know to think about that was um was really difficult and then how how do you move on um but uh jason mcgatlin in lucasfilm had been talking to me for a few months before I finished, so I went and um, spent some time at, at Lucasfilm after I was done, and that was a fantastic experience because they understood the scale of Game of Thrones. They understood, um, not necessarily in a television sense, what we had been doing, but they certainly understood filmically what we had been trying to achieve, and so uh, it was just fantastic to spend some time with those guys after the show, and. You know, the thing was, though, that um, all the Game of Thrones people, we we stayed very close to one another and all of us found it quite quite difficult to land, I think, after the show. It, it took a long time to um, to settle down, I think, and just realise that, you know, we were all moving on. And that was, uh, it took a bit of adjusting. And obviously, being from Australia, I was sort of heading back out sort of into the the satellite of Australia and everybody else was sort of American or English. So they were, it was much easier for them to see each other and catch up and all that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, I, I felt a bit, a bit lonely, I think for a while. And I guess Lucasfilm, Deb and, and Star Wars is one of those great examples over decades in entertainment history for creating these worlds that people have to feel as though they believe in which all these extraordinary things happen in those worlds. So I guess that was, you know, had some similarities with Game of Thrones in trying to make people feel as though the completely abnormal was normal. Yes, that's exactly it. And um, 
George Lucas was a big fan of Game of Thrones and he came and visited our set once and he walked through the art department and they had to sort of drag him out because he recognised completely what we were doing. He utterly understood it and he loved it. Like he loved walking through the sets and uh, he loved going and watching them shoot. And he was, you know, saying that in his day, things were done slightly differently, but ultimately our goals were exactly the same. We had created a world that, um, you know, people thoroughly believed in. Deb, what about in the coming year? So let's just pretend that COVID will allow us to go back to something like we used to know and the the film and, and TV business goes back into a usual pattern. How do the, I guess, the rise of the streaming services and just the pure availability of content, there's so much content out there and all of this content moves our minds in different ways than it, than it used to. How does that affect your work as a production designer? What, what is different now in, in trying to keep audiences entertained and, and engaged than it was maybe before this proliferation of content? Well, this is the thing. Um, there's so much choice out there now that, uh, you know, it's called content and it's not even called film or television anymore, is it? I mean, it just doesn't seem as special anymore. Um, remember when going to film, to see a film was an event? You know, you would go to a cinema and you would sit in a space with um, an audience of people and, you know, you would all laugh and cry and carry on at the oh, same yeah. thing. Oh, yeah, you jumped the train to get in there too from uh, yeah. out where we lived. It was a big event. Yeah, it was It was something to do. You know, it was really a, a, an event. Yeah, as you say, it was an event. It was, it was a thing, you know. And I, I, as I say, I can very easily recollect sitting in the you know, in the cinema with my other three other friends and watching Batman. You know, it was it was something. Whereas now, uh, it just doesn't carry the same kind of weight. I think that it used to. So, so much more uh, inverted commas content is being made now that the industry um, has a lot more opportunity. I guess for for young filmmakers, um, uh, you know, to break into the industry because you don't need a full set of kit anymore. You can make a film on your iPhone. So there's a lot of, um, you know, young people now who are able to, um, you know, come into the system in a very different way than the way that somebody like myself had to enter. You know, it is much easier now for young people to understand the filmmaking process because, as I say, they can more or less carry a version of it in their pocket. So that has rocked the world dramatically in terms of the entertainment industry and how things come together. And, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, there's a, there's a lot of content out there, but the question is, you know, are these streaming services prepared to pay, um, you know, to make the quality content? I mean, that's the, that's the thing because none of these things are cheap, um, even with all of the technology that we have now. I mean, it still takes enormous crews to put them all together and, um, you know, uh, at its maximum, Game of Thrones had about a thousand crew members on it at one point. You know, that's a lot of people to put a television show together. And so like you say so you can make a, a a film with an iPhone, but a production designer needs to have resources there to achieve the best goals. I'm guessing. Yeah, exactly. Because you can't make Game of Thrones on your kitchen table, and that's the difference. I think you know the art department. You know, when it was 
really in full swing, had about 200 people in it. Wow. So, you know, and as I say, it just all costs money. It was filmed in all different parts of the world and we were, um, you know, building on big stages and it was a, an extraordinary experience. So uh, these streaming services have to be prepared to invest uh, the money and the time in order to develop it and, and make those kind of shows. Um, there's plenty of, um, you know, uh, shows of a lesser magnitude out there um, and then the question remains like are these big tent pole shows I mean are they worth it are they worth the investment will the audiences enjoy you know the risk that's been taken in order to produce these massive beasts of things um, so it's uh, from a production standpoint I think it's fascinating just about in terms of how to get a show greenlit how to get um, permission to, to get these things off the ground. Um, it's, as I say, I think it's astonishing that anything at all happens, but that then you can create something of quality, I think, is, is a real achievement and something that will stand beyond its time um, because things come and go so quickly now. Uh, something that really stands the test of time, I think, is, um, is much more difficult because it has to stand out from the crowd and Maybe Game of Thrones wouldn't stand out as much anymore because, you know, there's just so much more around these days than when that show uh, was first airing. So it's difficult to tell. It's an ongoing experiment, isn't it? I mean, will all of these streaming platforms survive? Who knows? Yeah, that's right, and, um, especially in these different times. And uh, over those last 12 months when things have been a bit different, do you ever go back and look at some of the things you've worked on before? We've mentioned some of them already, some of the, the, the films you've worked on in the, and uh, in, in TV as well. Do you ever go back and look at them and, and critique in your own mind um, how things look on set? No. I mean, I'm ashamed to say there are some episodes of Game of Thrones I've never seen. Oh, really? Um, well, I mean, for me, I I get the joy out of actually standing there and looking at it. I mean, how they choose to shoot it is not necessarily up to me, but I do get an enormous amount of satisfaction out of standing there in real time and watching the actors rehearse in the space, and then I hand it over and it's done. Um, I felt the same way in Moulin Rouge, you know, when I saw the elephant built and uh, I realised that I had you know achieved what I set out to achieve that's the that's the point at which I'm okay with saying and it belongs to someone else now so um, you know how they choose to shoot it is is up to the shooting crew um, but I like to know that I've given them the best possible thing to photograph that I possibly can and that it supports the story and the storytelling and the director and the crew in the best way it possibly can so that's where my satisfaction comes from which is I think very different from um, designer to designer I mean there are I know people who are you know obsessed with um, you know watching films and you know a, a big history buffs film history buffs and uh, you know take great pleasure in you know the whole process of you know standing there you know during the whole filming of something but uh, certainly on drones I mean you know I was working so fast as much as anything else that there just wasn't time to hang around anyway and so um, you have to be satisfied with um, you know with knowing that you've done the best that you can and that it looks as good as it possibly can and and then you know you're off to start the new thing. 
Deb, it's been fantastic talking to you and especially to listen to some of your insights into the way that you engage audiences and so many people who have been thoroughly absorbed by the worlds that you have had a hand in creating probably don't realise that, but it's been fabulous to talk about it and just to listen to your journey. And uh, once this whole COVID thing settles down, look forward to seeing what comes next because it could be anything given your whole background. I mean, your next step and whatever project you take on, I guess, could be anything. Yeah, I'm actually going to come up to the University of Queensland and um, work as an industry fellow up there in my old architecture school, which will be fun. Um, Yeah, I mean, the wonderful thing about having this time off is that it's enabled different opportunities to kind of bubble to the surface. So, uh, yeah, to have a to have a role in education, I think, would be a, a great thing. And then all being well in the second half of the year, you know, I'll go over and, um, you know, probably go back to England and resume my film career. But in the meantime, um, yeah, there are a couple of projects at home that will keep me occupied. So that's great. Yes, and I've thoroughly enjoyed talking to you too, Michael. It's amazing to think that we could do this. Yeah, well, thank you. And I know you'll go back to UQ with uh, so many stories that you probably couldn't have even imagined when you were there as a student. And uh, I'm sure uh, the students of today will benefit greatly. So thanks so much, Deb. We really appreciate your time and we look forward to seeing what comes next. Thanks so much, Michael. You're much welcome.